News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Uh, it's funny, I didn't even know Facebook went down at all yesterday until this morning when you announced it on the air. All right, thanks. I love that. I didn't know until I went to go read the news in the afternoon and, you know, start doing some work for the show today. And I went, oh, Facebook's been down for six hours? Oh, it's too bad for the people who really love that because I also didn't really notice. But let's find out if our Raji Sohal did notice. Good morning, Raji. <laughs> Good morning, Simi. Yeah, I obviously noticed. Come on, what are you, growing a, a garden under a rock there? No, I noticed, and it only took me, I don't know, a dozen attempts to refresh before I realized, hmm, maybe something's up. And I went on uh, Google, another uh, app online, and found that, uh, yeah, everybody was experiencing the same outage. You know what I am so curious about? You mentioned the companies that were yes. uh, involved in the outage. That's Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, hugely influential. But they don't own Twitter. And so I'm so curious. I bet you anything that Twitter's usage numbers went through the roof because people have to put their you know, social... Uh, they have to go somewhere. Somewhere, right? They did because Twitter actually, the official Twitter account for the company was hilarious yesterday. Twitter is one thing that I am on simply to read the news. That's what I use it for. And I noticed that's how I actually realized something was going on because Twitter actually tweeted, hello, everyone which I thought was very funny. So they obviously knew that people were flocking to their platform because, as you say, people need something to go somewhere. So how did you find it, though, Raji? Uh, was well, it difficult I, for you? I, not difficult. No, I enjoyed it. Um, I, I'm one of the victims of uh, Twitter in that I definitely spent more time on Twitter yesterday. So I clearly have some kind of habit there that I need to re-examine just because I did want something, you know, interval. You had to scroll through something. Got to scroll through something. Um, but no, I had deep satisfaction in reading that uh, Mike, uh, Mark Zuckerberg lost $6 billion yesterday over just the course of uh, four hours. I love seeing that because one company controlling these huge apps, exactly. half the population, deeply problematic. And, you know, other founders, other social media founders around the world have tried to make alternatives. But how do you finance a model? How do you compete with the likes of Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook? It's just, it seems so impossible. So, I mean, they haven't made headway, these other uh, apps, these like small alternatives, but I think people are finally waking up to the fact that we need to do something different because, um, you know, there has been so much scrutiny of the social media giant's reach of late. Um, but if your entire business, all your operations hinge on a free app, that has some nefarious intentions. Don't be mad at the app when it goes down. Be mad right. at yourself. Like that's not a responsible way to run your business. And I know an influencer, so uh, social media influencer, Simi is someone who I'm pretty sure you know, but for any listeners that don't, is somebody who, uh, you know, makes a lot of money off of just using the app, basically sharing their life and lifestyle and trying to influence others and bringing in ad dollars from that kind of a thing. Well, an influencer, a Vancouver one that I know who has a couple hundred thousand followers, she relies on being chained 
to her followers. Like she, you know, answers and replies to Ugh. people immediately. And <laughs> it yeah, it's pretty horrible. gross. It, it, she has no control, it seems, anymore in her life. She's like run by the app. Well, I imagine that the outage was a reality check for her. Maybe it made her realize just how enmeshed these social media apps are in our life. She checks them constantly. And when she's socializing with other people, she has her eyes down on her phone. Um, and, you know, some people chalk it up to her age because she, she is quite young. She's in her early 20s. Um, I just can't even... I don't even think that she could have imagined a day where she couldn't be chained to her apps. I think you should talk to her. I think you should try to, that might be something that, you know, we definitely have to try to do today is, does this change anything or is it just a blip? Are people going to forget all about this and resume everything they were doing before? I'm with you. I think this showed us that there is far too much reliance and people and things and businesses depending on this one company with these applications for it's not healthy. We were at the beginning of Facebook. I remember some cynicism around privacy and handing everything over to an app that, you know, people have problems with the government tracking them. No, Facebook knows a lot more about you than the government knows about you. And yet, you, ironically, you know? they're using Facebook to organize. <laughs> right? Oh, yes, exactly. That's the irony of this whole thing. Facebook knows more about you than anybody or anything else in the world. And yet people seem okay with that. And so I'm wondering if yesterday was any kind of a wake-up call or do you think people will just be relieved to see that it's over and go back to doing what they were doing before? Uh, I think it's the latter for most people. People will be relieved to be able to go back to what was. But I think for a good chunk of people who used it for business purposes and saw that they couldn't do their business, I'm guessing for them that it was a reality check. You know, I worked in an American newsroom in Los Angeles briefly, and they expected us to be on all three of those apps, to be on social media. And at the time, it was unheard of for a, a newsroom to expect people to engage with social media to that extent. Well, now that's become the norm. Now, um, you know, even my child's uh, school board expects us to share things about our children on Facebook. And it's become so ingrained now in people's lives that we don't even question what we have handed over to Facebook. I'm not sure if you ever caught that uh, documentary about Facebook that came out, I guess, in 2020. Um, I think it was called Social Dilemma. And it was just a real eye opener for me about how Facebook, it's not that they don't care enough. It's that they don't care at all about no. people's mental health. All it's they care money. about is profit. Yeah. It's just about money. You know, really interesting. I read an article last night, and this this is in actually this week's edition of The New Yorker, if anybody wants to check it out, the magazine. It's actually an article about the old silent um, screen star Fatty Arbuckle and how his scandal was the first huge Hollywood scandal. But it also covers the area of when movies and motion pictures were unregulated, and it was just like the Wild West and eventually they brought in the Motion Picture Association of America to regulate these movies and what you could show, what you couldn't show. And they likened it to what's happening right now with social media. Because back then, movie companies were so powerful and so ubiquitous. They could do whatever they wanted. And so they had to bring in something to bring that under control. And there's a lot of similarities to what we see happening right now. Like, is this going to be the thing that makes governments realize we can't let this just run amok? 
Well, a good five years ago, there were a lot of governments looking at what Facebook does, what they can get away with, how much control they have. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but actually in the UK, there are way more controls on how WhatsApp's used and on what information they can extrapolate from users. We don't have those controls in Canada. And you're right. It's a bit like the Wild West. Uh, They just kept doing and expected to ask for permission later. Even still, there are, you know, all these leaks of documents are coming out, research that shows that they knew for a long time how their app was uh, very poor for girls' mental health. It harmed them. And they still didn't do anything about it. And they continued to deny that it's a negative thing. Yeah. <laughs> so It's astounding. It's astounding what we have allowed it to become. Yeah. And you wonder at what point will people say enough or will they or will Facebook police itself before we get to that point? That's the other good question. But we're going to talk more about that today. Raji, thank you. Thanks so much to me. So Raji Sohal, yeah, I want to hear from you on this. So yeah, okay, there was this big outage yesterday, Facebook, WhatsApp, uh, Instagram, all of it down yesterday. And I think for a lot of people, it was deeply affected them. Others like me, not so much. Didn't even notice until I read the news that there was an outage. So how did it impact you? And do you think that t- tells us that we have to change something about this one company's influence? Weigh in with your thoughts. Simi at cknw.com or you can call our buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. Nobody has spoken about a regulated safe supply, which is what experts, doctors, Healthcare workers and advocates have made clear that if we want people to stop dying in this province at the rate of six people per day, then the poisonous illicit drug supply needs to be replaced with a regulated safe supply. My question for you, Honourable Speaker, is to the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Will we see steps taken to ensure that it is not a poisonous drug supply that is killing British Columbians every day. That's Sonia Firstnow, leader of the BC Greens, and some of question period yesterday, the opioid overdose crisis, a very hot topic. And the opposition parties, both of them, Greens and Liberals, raised some very good questions about why we don't seem to be making progress against this crisis. We are still losing far too many people. We do a lot of talking about it. But where is the progress? Well, joining us now is Sheila Malcolmson, the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, to talk more about that. Thank you for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for the invitation. Do you think that we are doing all we can on this crisis? Until the public health emergency is ended and we stop seeing this terrible loss of life, then no, we won't have done enough. And that's why this spring's budget had an unprecedented commitment to further expanding new ways to tackle the toxic drug crisis and expanding existing services. And those expansion of programs and and new steps are are happening right now. Uh, We have added so much to the arsenal. Uh, There are so many more people working to save lives from paramedics to emergency room nurses to peer workers and tragically, with the increasingly toxic supply because of the impacts of the, of the pandemic, things are, are getting worse. It is, um, it is terrible and it 
just makes us work harder every day. Right. But when are we going to see some progress on that safe supply issue? If that's what can really change this thing, how much harder can we push on that? Well, yeah, well, we brought that in a year and a half ago. Um, I think that was, uh, you know, something that I uh, tried to um, reinforce with my uh, opposition colleagues yesterday in question period. Two weeks into the pandemic, a year and a half ago, we had a public health order to uh, to make uh, prescribed safe supply available to people as a way to separate them from the toxic drug supply. Since then, we've had a 475% increase in the number of people that are taking some kind of, uh, of prescription as a way um, you know, to attend to their deep addiction, but also allow them to stabilize. And many of these people have then been able to get their lives in some order. It certainly reduces crime. It certainly has all kinds of positive social impacts, but especially gives people the balance that maybe then allows them to take that step to go into treatment. And then in July, Bonnie Henry and I announced an expansion of that. Reese is the only place in Canada that allows, that has safe supply available for people that are addicted to opioids. And in July, we announced an expansion of that, including now people are able to get prescribed fentanyl patches for the purpose of preventing overdose and also Fentora, the only place in Canada that this is available. So it's a sign of all the new ways that we're trying to tackle this terrible loss of life. Why not more of it then? If that's what is working, if you think that's making a difference, then why, why isn't there more of it? Well, well, this is what we're trying to expand every week. It's a new area of practice for prescribers, and uh, they say, you know, quite reasonably, they've got patient safety at the forefront. The power and the, um, you know, the the power of these drugs is is incredible. Um, you know, it is a new area of practice, and so we're doing the training, we're doing the support. We're, um, we're working with the colleges to get more prescribers in the field, but we've also had a tremendous increase in the number of, of medical people that are willing to prescribe. And so a 475% increase from a year and a half ago is a huge number uh, in, the num- in people that are being prescribed safe supply. And our budget this spring, half a billion dollars helps to expand that. And that's work we're doing with every health authority right now. Is that the issue? Is that part of the issue then, uh, Minister Malcolmson? Is there not enough um, health officials, doctors, people willing to get on board with prescribing that safe supply? Well, I would say at every level, we have never asked so much of our healthcare system. Uh, In the past, um, there wasn't enough training to get more doctors and more nurses in the field. Um, and so we, that is a bottleneck. There's no question in every element of the healthcare system and particularly in a specialized area like this. Um, so the, um, you know, us uh, with the colleges getting uh, healthcare practitioners, nurse practitioners and doctors uh, um, comfortable and able, that's one piece. Um, the other is, is just simply having the people on the ground to make those connections. And we see that happening in a number of specific areas. I just toured last week in Chilliwack, um, a clinic that's attached to the Chilliwack Hospital where they have a really innovative way of meeting people who are um, who are in active addiction uh, on an outpatient basis, being able to stabilize them with medication-assisted treatment and then be able to have that conversation with them about getting on safe supply. 
and then be able to have those conversations about the next steps on treatment. This is happening at the Molson Centre on downtown east side as well. People might come in for supervised consumption, but then they have a conversation with the nurse. They walk to the other side of the room and they're able to get connected with a prescribed safe supply. So those connections are are happening, but this is the first in Canada. We're all learning as we go. Do we not need to integrate the health system more? Like you pointed out a couple of instances there, but I mean, opioid overdoses happen in every hospital in this province. And if somebody comes in and that happens to them, how do we keep a hold of that person to connect them? Yeah, yeah, it's a very good question. And that is a, um, you know, that was extremely hot topic last summer in the legislature, right? When my my predecessor, Judy Darcy, proposed for children stabilization care legislation to say that after an overdose, that there be the ability for doctors to make the call that they can hold temporarily that underage person to allow them to stabilize, stabilize after an overdose and, and offer them treatment, not a forced treatment, but just, I mean, and that was extremely controversial and the bill was withdrawn and we're now taking another look at it to see how we can attend to some of the concerns people have. This is a, just in every area. Um, that is a very reasonable point that you make. We thought so too, especially as it relates to children. It was controversial. So but what about adults are, though, right? Like if somebody came to the hospital and had a massive heart attack, we don't just let them walk away and say they don't want more treatment. We, we do things. Why can't we do that with anybody and not just children, teenagers, adults who have yeah. an overdose? Well, when we don't have our emergency rooms, you know, overrun, like this year and a half, I mean, this is partly the the time, this is the peak of overdose at the same time that we're attending to the pandemic. And they're absolutely interrelated. The two pandemics have exacerbated each other. It's very hard in a busy and overrun emergency room to have those conversations. And people have the right to refuse treatment, and they do. Um, And they do sometimes for heart attacks as well. Um, But that is an entry point. And you're right, um, in every case, our health authorities are are working harder and integrating more uh, that addiction medicine right into the emergency room. And that is our very best point to connect somebody with care and let them know what inside the health authority is available for them so far as medication-assisted treatment, um, uh, safe supply, um, and dealing with their just basic primary care needs that might mean that they can stabilize and, and, uh, and consider taking that step of entering treatment as we're building out more treatment beds, more detox beds, and, and we're hitting this crisis from every point across the continuum. Well, we'll have to check back in with you. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate the conversation. Thanks, Simi. That's Sheila Malcolmson, the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, the MLA for Nanaimo, talking about where is the progress? Why are we not making more substantial progress in this opioid crisis? This is Mornings with Simi. Parents want to know when there is a COVID exposure at their child's school, and it can be stressful waiting to find out. Maybe you have to wait for someone to post it on Facebook, or you have to keep checking, or you're you're going all over the place looking for the information. Well, one parent decided to do something about that. He's a software engineer and a dad in New Westminster. Gabriel Bauman joins us now, software engineer and founder of Exposure.Watch. Thanks for being with us this morning. Thanks for having me. So tell me, what made you decide to do something about this? Well, last year, um, I was watching the uh, numbers, the letters come in. Um, you know, you're watching numbers appearing and disappearing on health authority sites because they don't keep a chronological uh, sort of history of exposure events in schools. Um, and then I was watching the COVID uh, school tracker doing really great work on social media. 
but I also realized that uh, many of my peers weren't really aware of um, those moms and their projects. So um, just decided to try and take the data and make something, um, you know, a little bit more uh, useful um, to people who don't have time to process that fire hose of information on social media. I like the way you put that, a fire hose of information on social media. So what did you create then? How does this work? Uh, yeah, so uh, basically people go to exposure.watch and uh, they search for their child's school. And then you can send a text message to subscribe to that school. And as soon as um, we um, notice or see in the data um, an exposure event, we send you a text message and we put the most recent exposures on the website. We give each school a page and a, a red, yellow, green kind of a status. Um, so you can sort of uh, uh, see how concerned you should be and sort of uh, see the immediate problems that might be going on at the school. Okay, so how long did it take you to come up with this? Uh, <laughs> well, um, I've been thinking about building it for a year or so, but I didn't want to steal anyone's thunder or, uh, you know, get in the way. Um, but uh, when the government basically took away um, school information at the beginning of the year, I got fed up. Uh, it took me about 40 hours to build the uh, site and spin up the infrastructure. Uh, it's kind of what I do for a living, so I just have two jobs now. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, just went at it. And uh, then it leaked uh, last week. I wasn't quite ready to, to launch it. And uh, it just took off on social media, so rolled with it. And here we are. So what has the reaction been like? Because, you know, a lot of people would love this information from the government, and you've certainly shown the government that, hey, no excuses, this is possible. What kind of oh, reaction, exactly. yeah, what have you, what would yeah. reaction have you gotten? Uh, it's been a uniformly positive reaction. They're the usual cranks, obviously. But, the uh, you know, we're, we're dealing with, I think we're passing 7,500 approach, rolling in on 8,000 subscriptions now overnight. And uh, right now on the site, there are 200 people um, searching. Um, I just looked at the stats. So, I mean, there's been huge uptake. It's it's early in the morning on a weekday, and, you know, it's yeah. really busy. Yeah. Does it surprise you as well, though, Gabriel, when you look at that, about how much COVID exposure there is in the schools? Like, it must, as a dad yourself, you must think, I can't believe all this information was out there. Well, you know, I've, I've been following it for years, so it's not really surprising. Um, and, you know, it was quite well predicted by the um, COVID modeling group, the independent researchers who, you know, predicted that by mid-October we'd be uh, kind of in a storm here. And it's looking that way. There are lots of, uh, lots of exposures out there, lots of transmission. Um, and, you know, the message from the government is, hey, well, there's not much transmission. And uh, also, you know, Mr. Minister Dix came on the other day and essentially said, uh, you know, here are the numbers for you know, uh, hospital uh, critical care admissions for and lumped in, you know, the elementary school kids with the uh, 20-year-olds, basically. There's this big right. block. We're not allowed to see, you know, what's going on actually with the unvaccinated kids, and that's a problem. Where can people find this website? Uh, the website is exposure.watch, and uh, the Twitter account is uh, at exposurewatch, and um, just working on adding features and trying to make it more useful for more people. I'll be checking it out. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Thanks for having me. It's Gabriel Bauman, software engineer and founder of Exposure.Watch. This is kind of a one-stop shopping for people who want to know what the heck is going on in their child's school with COVID exposures. Uh, Gabriel's a software engineer, dad in New Westminster, who decided to just create this website himself, and it sends you a text notification when there has been an exposure at your child's school. Information that I know parents have been waiting for. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Right now, we're going to talk about the big story in the last 24 hours is whatever did people do when Facebook and Instagram and Messenger and WhatsApp were down yesterday? Well, it had a huge impact for a lot of people's lives. Maybe you didn't notice, though, because I had some emails about that, too. Send me at cknw.com. But joining us now to talk more about it is Dr. Anatoly Gruz, who's a Canada Research Chair in Social Media Data Stewardship and the Director of the Social Media Lab at Ryerson University. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Simi. Have you been hearing from a lot of people about the impact this had yesterday? Uh, definitely, for sure. Especially uh, from those people who actually use Facebook day-to-day. Uh, in Canada, for example, about 77% of Facebook users check in using Facebook every day. So uh, definitely those individuals uh, were impacted by that outage. Have we ever seen an outage, do you think, this big before, this extensive? Well, last time it happened about two years ago where Facebook um, wasn't accessible for about 24 hours. So in the grand scheme of things, um, if you think about similar outage was two years ago, that's not a big deal. But of course, if you're a small business uh, using Facebook uh, or Instagram or related uh, sites that they run for day-to-day operation, to promote product services, to sell stuff using Facebook Marketplace, then, of course, your business has been impacted a lot. Is this something that you think will have any kind of a lasting impact, Dr. Grust, or do you think people are going to just forget all about it and keep going? Well, I think it's, it's certainly one of those drops uh, to the bucket, with the, which is all, all already full of complaints and concerns that uh, Facebook users had for a long time about Facebook products and services, not just about um, not being, uh, be, being able to access services, but about the propagation of misinformation, hate speech on the platform. And this current outage is actually uh, kind of at the same time when uh, in the U.S. you have um, Congress uh, hearing about the uh, U.S. misrepresentation or omission of certain internal research about potential damages that their platform is doing to, to the society. But will we learn any lessons from this, I guess, is the big question. I know this isn't the best of time for Facebook when you have a Facebook whistleblower, you know, testifying in front of U.S. politicians. Uh, well, I think from the technical side, I'm sure that engineers at Facebook now figuring out how to make it uh, air tolerant for the next time to avoid issues like this because what happened is all of their websites apparently were routed through the facebook.com related domain and so essentially you have one point of failure if uh, you cannot access one and you cannot access WhatsApp and even internal communication and access to their uh, buildings uh, were impacted from what we're hearing. Uh, so I, I'm sure from the technical, it's surprising that nowadays Things like that would happen for large companies like that. But I hope they are learning those lessons. What I was thinking is other platforms like Google, uh, as we more and more rely on those services, and not just for emails, but for collaboration, for communication, but even to sign in with Google, just think about it. How many of us are using that sign in with Google button across the Internet? So if you have um, reliance on one service, as large as Google or as large as Facebook with billions of users, then, of course, the risk of losing certain access to important um, websites uh, going up. So I hope platforms, not just Facebook, but Google of the world, are watching carefully and learning how to address or mitigate similar situations in the future.
Right. Okay. So, but this is something that do we have to ask ourselves this, Dr. Grizz? Like, do we have to say, hey, maybe I'm too reliant on all of this stuff? Or is it just the companies are never going to do this themselves and decide that they need to be better? Well, as individuals, I think uh, there's always that notion of take a break from social media. Yes, it's great to be connected and informed, but sometimes it's also great to disconnect and connect with uh, people around you or just, you know, print materials. Uh, uh, But as business, uh, sometimes we have no choice, especially during the pandemic when uh, your engagement with your customers is really online only in most of the cases and you're selling your products and services online only, then the reliance on platforms like Facebook uh, is going up. Uh, So there's no really option. But even then, they still can consider alternative ways to use multiple channels to communicate and sell um, products to their customers. For example, um, when Facebook was down, their communication team actually was using Twitter to provide updates about this outage. So essentially, personally, I think we should consider um, what platforms we're using, for what purposes, and uh, try to uh, diversify our usage. Right. Is there an appetite, though, do you think, for regulation on companies like Facebook and like Google just because of how huge they are? And especially in light of what happened yesterday, showing that there's a lot of reliance on these companies. Well, there's certainly an appetite... uh, uh, to regulate what is uh, not clear is um, how to do that uh, so that, you know, still uh, support innovation while uh, making sure um, th- the impact of whatever regulation is actually going to uh, serve the purposes that they need. Uh, there was uh, last year a huge discussion about whether Facebook should be um, broken down into different platforms, you know, Instagram, for example, and WhatsApp as a standalone companies. But that seems to be didn't go anywhere um, um, now there's a discussion about whether um, Facebook did not disclose informa- internal information, research they had about potential uh, harm to people's well-being when they online and exposed to uh, divisive uh, political uh, content and hate right. speech. Do you think um, Facebook might read the writing on the wall on this one, Dr. Cruz, though, and decide that, okay, maybe we should try policing ourselves just a little bit to avoid more trouble? Well, that's what been, we've been hearing from uh, Facebook for years now. And I think until they, uh, they treated it as a PR uh, problem rather than actually the user-based problem. So until they actually see a huge drop in the usage of their platform, I'm not sure that they actually on their own will take uh, an effective step to address these issues. Well, we'll see what happens. Uh, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. That's Dr. Anatoly Gruz, who's a Canada Research Chair in Social Media Data Stewardship and Director of the Social Media Lab at Ryerson University, talking about the impact of that Facebook outage. And when we say Facebook, we mean the big umbrella company because it wasn't just Facebook. It was Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, Messenger, everything related to Facebook, just completely gone for people for about seven hours yesterday. And for businesses... For a lot of them, this was a lifeline that they lost. For others, you know, they might have realized that, oh, people got a little more productivity here without people glued to Facebook or Instagram all day long. What was it like for you? Simi at cknw.com. If you're like me, 
I didn't even notice. I didn't notice until I'm not on any of those things. So I didn't notice until I was reading the news later in the day and thought, oh, that sounds like a pretty big uh, outbook, uh, um, you know, outage of Facebook there. Or maybe for you, it was, you know, all right, I noticed how much time I now spend on these apps. Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. We'll have another traffic update coming up for you shortly. And right on a day like today, you need them, right? As many as you can possibly get because it's messy out there. And we're going to have mornings that look like this quite a bit over the next few months, of course. It can be messy out there. And we know that speed and road conditions, well, they all play a big factor in road safety. But we're going to talk about this new survey that shows that people who drive for work, and that is, you know, their job is driving, well, they say that crashes are unavoidable. Our Raji Silhal joins us now. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, we've all seen those news stories of road accidents that involve semi-trucks, delivery trucks, the ones that are stopping on the side of your street with hazards on to bring you those Amazon boxes and whatnot to your doorstep, but also community health worker vans that have to transport people and even bus drivers. So for a lot of people who drive to work, the driving is itself a huge part of the work. And that's going to include some of our listeners here this morning, too. But unless you're driving one of those vehicles yourself, it can, I think, be hard to imagine what that experience is like when you have to make unexpected stops often or you have to block traffic. Um, And on a day like this, a morning like this, that can look kind of messy. And you are yourself trying to make it on time to where you need to go uh, without messing up your day's schedule. But there's people all around you just honking, waiting impatiently. It's a lot of pressures, right? Yes. Well, A recent survey conducted by Road Safety at Work really uh, surprised me. It found that 84% of people who drive as part of their job, so that's, you know, the truck drivers and whatnot, believe that crashes can't be avoided. And only 14% of those people think that speeding is to blame. That shocked me uh, because, you know, even this kind of the language that we use around this kind of thing, people often call car crashes accidents. Personally, I've always referred to them as crashes and I have thought the opposite, that all of them are avoidable, even when there's um, extreme weather that we need to just uh, use extreme caution and drive defensively. Louise Yako is with Road Safety at Work and she has some recommendations for drivers. The things that drivers can be doing uh, in order to be uh, safer on the roads involve things like planning, uh, making sure that they are properly trained, uh, making sure that their vehicles are properly maintained, and um, and using defensive driving ta- uh, tactics and techniques when they are driving. What do people need to understand about speed limits? Speed limits are set for optimal driving conditions. So when it's sunny, um, it's bright out, uh, the roads are dry, they're not set for conditions when it, the weather may be poor, um, when the lighting may be poor, it might be foggy or rainy. And so people need to recognize that they have to self-monitor when they are driving and uh, the speed limits are set for best conditions only. Oh, that is so true, Raji. I've had to drive out um, Highway 1 using the Portman Bridge quite a bit recently uh, to visit a relative who's in the hospital out that way. And I came into work one day last week and I said to our producer, Greg, 
I cannot believe how fast people go on the Portman yeah. Bridge. I said, no wonder there's so many problems. Like people, and it was raining on some days and, you know, other days just the traffic conditions not good and people are just flying on that bridge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you think about those speed limits, I mean, uh, today, for example, it's gloomy, it's dark, there's a lot of rain out there, lots of massive puddles. And uh, the school around the corner from myself, I still see, you know, that's a 30 zone in good weather, but I see people going above 30 uh, on a day like today. And visibility is poor. They can't see kids, yeah. dogs. Um, so yeah, you know, I think back, to before kids. I used to take transit all the time. Back then, my reasons were environmental, but then it changed to wanting to just, you know, I wanted a more pleasant uh, commute to work. And I couldn't stand being around stressed out, aggressive drivers, people who are like, I have to make it to work by this time, or I have to uh, deliver these goods to this person's door by this time in order to make good schedule for the rest of the day. Um, but definitely people need to slow down. And soon, Simi, we're going to hit that icy weather too. Uh, that's when like streets become literally unpredictable. You don't know when you'll hit a patch of ice, right? This is how I feel too, but I don't think people, they don't adjust accordingly, which is why every single time, like clockwork, when it's raining and the weather is bad, we have more problems. That's true. I also think though that we need to give a lot more grace to people like delivery truck drivers, um, that when they are in our way, that we realize the pressures, we remind ourselves of the pressures that they are under um, and try to give them that space. Because I think when people are hurried, they are just uh, that much more stressed out and that much more likelier to get into a crash. It seems like, you know, regularly now I'm hearing about uh, truck driver crashes and bus driver um very tragic uh, accidents there, crashes there too. And everyone needs to give uh, these people a lot more grace. Gosh, yeah. their jobs are hard enough as it is. And then they have people honking their horns at them all the time too. Isn't that interesting though? Because like you, anybody could be a delivery for you. It could be like yeah. it, today it's for your neighbor. Tomorrow it's probably your delivery. So why are you getting impatient when just about everybody partakes of some kind of delivery? True. Um, but then, and this is new to me, I've noticed uh, that since my kids, uh, one of my kids has started kindergarten, she has to be at the door at 8.44 a.m. And she can't be there at 8.45 or 8.46. Otherwise, we have to take her to the principal's office. And that takes an extra half an hour of processing. And it's this whole, whole big charade. So, um, you know, there isn't grace in some of those instances. Um, so, you know, ironically, around the schools, I notice actually some of the more dangerous driving. That's true. Because people uh, are in such a rush to get their kids there on time. And I know that's the case for some workplaces. I recently was talking to um, a milk truck driver. He didn't even know those existed anymore, but he was delivering a bunch of uh, milk, cartons of milk um, to uh, an elderly care uh, center. And he told me that if he messes up on one of the deliveries in the day, that it just throws everything off. Oh, and um, he's under an immense so pressure stressful. to get that done on time too. So we just Be all nice. need to pay more attention on the roads. Oh, amen to that. Thank you for pointing that out this morning, Raji. <laughs> Thanks. Sam. This is Mornings with Simi. 
So you probably heard the news that three weeks into our whole vaccination card program, and the province says they've issued a grand total of three violation tickets. That's it. Now, businesses and organizations that don't comply with that health order requiring proof of vaccination may be issued a violation ticket, but it doesn't sound like they're really handing those out at a very crazy pace. When asked why so few tickets had been handed out, the Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth said the focus continues to be education over enforcement. Well, that sounds nice, but it's very frustrating for the people on the ground level who are complying with this and watching other businesses that are not. Joining us now is Jeff Guignardi, Executive Director of Able BC. That's BC's Alliance of Beverage Licensees. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning. Now, I know I, I, I heard you on the news saying that you have personally told the Ministry of Public Safety about 50 businesses that have not been following the rules. Is that right? Uh, well, I forwarded them to uh, a bit of a process in turn inside of government. I haven't spoken to the minister directly about this, but yes, we have submitted a list of them. There's also a Facebook group of a few hundred businesses that are openly telling people they're defying the rules, but the ones I've reported have come from industry. So the, the, the rule-following, law-abiding members of our organization have looked across the street and seen someone not following the rules. Uh, so we make sure those places get a visit because it's in, at this point, I mean, I, I agree with what you just said. I mean, education over enforcement sounds nice. And in the before times or normal times, that's totally fine. But we're three, four weeks into vaccine cards now. It's, it's not really an issue about education anymore. People are just choosing not to do it. And from a business perspective, I can understand why, because we've, we've found that the average business who's following these rules in the liquor industry, in the pubs and bars, are seeing about a 30% drop in their revenues. Just sort of put a put a bit of a cloud out there uh, with some folks. You can see the pressure on them to to do that. But unfortunately, we work in a regulated industry in general, and um, these are just rules that you have to follow. You don't right. have an option, but the, which the, is why we have four to be named on. Right. It's not a level playing field, though, right? So the ones that are following the rules are seeing a drop in business. Does that mean more people are going to these other businesses where they know they don't have to show the card? Well, we don't have a clear picture on what's happening out there exactly, but I do think, yes, that's the impression of a lot of businesses out there, that they're following the rules and they have customers come in and tell them, we're not going to come here if you enforce these rules, which is a strange perspective to take from a customer. It really is. With, right? I mean, it's we don't have a choice in following these. I mean, if, if you disagree with the policy, you should talk to the person who created the policy, right? Write to your MLA, write to Dr. Henry. Uh, leave the business alone. We're just following the rules the same way we have to follow every other rule about our license. And the you know the the thing that I think businesses are also frustrated on is they know that if the, the reason they're following the rules is they can be subject to huge fines up to twenty three hundred dollars, uh, or they can lose their business license from it. So they're most of the industry is taking this quite seriously. And for us, the frustrating part is when we have submitted these names, uh, I find only the only three of them that issued a fine to be a frustratingly small number. Right? I mean, I still get every single day, I get an email or a phone call from a member who's saying, this other business is not following the rules, what's going on? And then they're very frustrated, but right. which you can totally understand. Yeah. So what would you like to see happen here? Would you like to see stronger enforcement, more violation tickets handed out? Well, I think that that seems the logical result of this, right? If there's people not following the rules, and we know that, and we've sent a list of you know 50 or 60 businesses that haven't been following them, I know that when they go in to inspect those, sometimes that visit is going to resolve it. And we've certainly seen that happen in a couple of cases. Or sometimes the business will realize, oh, I thought I was doing something right, and that wasn't the issue. But there are definitely those among them who are just choosing not to follow them. So the result of that is not a visit for education. You have to resort to enforcement that's 
That's sort of how this works in this system. So we speak to government about this every week, um, and we're, we're frustrated that it's taking so long to see some enforcement because I, I personally think that I need to send a clear signal to those not following the rules that that's not acceptable, but also a clear signal to the businesses that are abiding by these, the government has your back on this. They're the ones asking us to do this. Mm -hmm. They're the the ones that have asked us to step up time and time again with different protocols for the pandemic, which is fine. We're happy to do it, but we need them to have our back by punishing the people who are not following the rules. Right. All I can think of, it must be so disheartening for a business that is struggling to stay open and continue to serve customers. Then you've got a couple of well-known local businesses that have been in the news and stuff because they have been flouting the rules and nothing seems to happen. Yeah, you can think of it this way. I mean, the government is saying, can you please put these handcuffs on your business to to limit your operations? And you say, yes, that's the law. That's the right thing to do. The person inside the street makes a big deal out of it, puts it on social media, advertises that they're not following the rules, and then nothing happens. That doesn't make sense, right? And we can't move forward like that. So I fully expect that uh, government will be issuing more fines in the next few weeks. Um, I mean, I also know when you, you look at the stats, we're, we're talking about the first few weeks of this, so it, it's understandable that enforcement is going to be slow in this, uh, and it's primarily complaint-driven, right? They're, they're not driving right. by the city looking at every business, but I know that industry, myself, and the restaurant associations have submitted these names to the businesses, so I, I fully expect them to be inspected uh, and, and find, and this is what we'll be talking to government about. What do you think is a fair punishment? I know in Alberta, they actually, they've been yanking the liquor licenses of some places that aren't obeying. Well, I don't know what the exact you know fair fine structure should look like, but it should definitely be an escalating uh, structure, right? Which is how these things usually work. Twenty three hundred dollars is a significant fine for an industry that has, in general, been breaking even or losing money for the past eighteen months. So it's not like people just have that in their pocket; they probably have to put that on their credit card. Uh, remember, we, we've had to get government grants and loans throughout this pandemic just to stay open, so that the fine is serious. But I do know that if you continue to violate the rules and you're issued several fines. The liquor industry, you could be deemed not fit and proper to have a liquor license anymore. You can't just break the law and expect to not have any consequences for this. It's a, it's a highly regulated industry, and these penalties matter. So what I would expect to see is, um, you know, yes, we'll start with education, but that has to be resolved immediately. And then issue those fines, and the maximum fine right now is $2,300. I say issue those. Uh, and then if people violate those rules again, then we're looking at you should be able to lose your business license or lose your liquor license. Right. When is the next meeting then with government where you can emphasize this? Oh, we meet with government uh, several times a week at different levels. So I'll be, I'll be chatting with them later today. All right. We'll see if there is an update on that. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. Jeff Quinard is the executive director of Able BC. That's BC's Alliance of Beverage Licensees. Can't even imagine the level of frustration that restaurants and bars have out there when they know there are businesses that are not complying with the whole vaccine card program and nothing seems to be happening. Government said this week they've issued a grand total of three, three violation tickets. So the education period to me is over. I mean, we've talked enough about this. It's been out there in the media. Everybody knows what's supposed to be happening. Uh, restaurants can, you know, find a way to make this happen. And if they're not doing it, well, that means it's willful. And if they're not following the rules, that is not fair to the restaurants that are following the rules. So yes, will there be a crackdown? That's something we're going to talk more about. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com.